as we continue with our look in Habakkuk, as we're just starting, we'll be in Habakkuk 1. We'll be looking at the next section, verses 5 through 11. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. As you're turning there, I'll go ahead and read this passage. Now, this is picking up uh, right after the prophet's questions and laments of verses 2 to 4. So we start in verse 5. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days, which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth, to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards, and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead, their cavalry cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings, and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. And then his mind changes, and he transgresses. He commits offense ascribing this power to his God. As we come looking through this passage, let me ask, has anyone ever asked or said something to you and said, you're not going to believe it? I've got something to tell you, and you're not going to believe it. Or have you responded with, wow, that's incredible. I, I don't believe that. That's really hard to believe. That's kind of what he's getting at here. Remember, we're coming off of these lamenting questions, this lamenting prayer, crying out from Habakkuk, saying, Lord, how long am I going to cry out? How long are you going to not listen? How long are you going to allow violence and, in violence and iniquity and injustice among your people? You said you would act. You said you would intervene. What are the righteous to do? And the Lord's answer comes in verses 5 through 11. And in verses 5 to 6, we see that God's work is astounding. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though you were told. For indeed I am rising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth, to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. God's work is astounding. He first tells the prophet to watch the nations. He, he essentially tells him, I am at work. I am about to do something unbelievable. I am not idle. And he tells him to watch the nations. And actually... The verbs here are, are not singular. They're plural. It is a plural you. You watch the nations. He's not talking just to Habakkuk. He is talking to Habakkuk and Judah. This is part of his message that Habakkuk was to deliver. He tells them to watch the nations, to see the political and military powers shifting. 
God was instructing both Habakkuk and Judah not to be nearsighted, to stop focusing on the internal strife and problems, but to look to the international world stage. You want to know where God is working? Look there. That was part of his answer here. And for them to look at the international scene, they would be astounded. Now this verb can also mean astonished or dumbfounded. It's that idea of, I don't know what to say to this. Okay? You will be astounded. You will be dumbfounded if you were to look and see the nations. God, God's work is sometimes hard to believe. He tells Judah to look at the nations and to see what he is doing. And the work God would do with Judah that would happen in the days of Habakkuk and the people of his day. I am doing a work in your days. You're going to see some, if not all of this, happen in your lifetime. But this work that the Lord would do would, was going to be hard to believe. And the Lord has done things that are hard to believe in the past. And he continues to do things that are hard to believe. God's promise to Abraham and Sarah about having a son in their old age was hard to believe. Sarah laughed. Crossing the Red Sea to escape Pharaoh was hard to believe. We're stuck between this raging army and, and, the, and the sea. How are we going to get out of here? Even though they just saw ten plagues that freed them, crossing the Red Sea was something hard to believe until they saw it. And even the gospel that we proclaim can be hard to believe. Paul's sermon in the synagogue at Antioch of Pisidia in Acts 13 quotes part of this verse. In Acts 13, verses 36 to 41, he says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, and be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Paul's teaching to the Corinthian church about the absurdity of the gospel to the world has a similar feel to it. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22, For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The gospel can be hard to believe. God's work is sometimes hard to believe. And as we're going to see here in just a little bit, as we continue on, God is saying his work is coming and it's beginning to happen on the international stage and that it will be judgment and discipline. Discipline is coming to Judah. 
Habakkuk wanted to know what the Lord was going to do. The answer was to look at the shift of international powers and the trouble on the horizon for Judah. Discipline was coming. Habakkuk may have, and Jeremiah certainly did, but Habakkuk may have faced doubters of the Lord's coming judgment. But what was true, but what is true today was true then, just as we read just a few minutes ago in Second Peter. Do not overlook the fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God was letting Judah go. He was giving them prophets. He was giving them opportunities to repent. Hezekiah and Josiah were the ones to institute reforms and made major swings back to following the Lord, but their children continued in the wrong way. And it was coming, and the Lord's patience was running out with them at this point. So at this point, we see that God is preparing his tools. He's preparing his tools. He says that I am raising up the Chaldeans. Now, who, are, who are these people? What is this group? This group is known as the Neo-Babylonians. That's how they're known uh, academically in the historical realm. They came from the region between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in modern Iraq, near the border of Iran, even all the way down towards, quite towards the, the head of the Persian Gulf. Over time, they developed military power under Nabopolassar, a Chaldean dynasty was formed in Babylon with the defeat of Assyria and the capture of Nineveh in 612 BC. This was just a few years before the setting of this book. Now, Nabopolassar is Nebuchadnezzar's father. So things are beginning to move very rapidly. Nebuchadnezzar, by this time, was nearing his ascension to the throne and may may have already been king of Babylon by this point. Now you may remember back in Genesis that Abraham migrated to Canaan from Ur of the Chaldeans. It's the same general region. God called his people from this group that would become increasingly violent. Now this nation would burst from between these rivers and sweep across the land, and little little Judah, their small cousin, would soon lie in their wake. So God is raising up the Chaldeans. He's raising up the Babylonian Empire. And he gives an initial description here in verse 6. He calls them bitter there's there's a somewhat figurative use of the word here. It's reflecting that bitter, being bitter in temper, being fierce. Another translation uses the word ruthless. 
He calls them a hasty nation. They are hurried. They hasten. The NIV uses impetuous. They are fierce. They are fast moving. Part of this description is that they are wide reaching. They seize dwellings. The Babylonian army rapidly spreads across Western Asia, while we, what we tend to think of as the Middle East, expanding their empire, gobbling up the remains of the Assyrian Empire, and part of Egypt's expanded territory into that section of the Middle East. Babylon was enriching their empire at the expense of other nations. But that is how empires grew. One author comments, in effect, the Lord's answer to violence is violence, as stipulated in the law, whose paralysis was regarded with regard to injustice is only temporary. Remember back in, in Habakkuk's complaint, the law is paralyzed, the, the law is powerless. But God will use the law. He's, you're breaking the covenant. I promised cursing, and I promised things from this covenant. You break the covenant, you get covenant retribution. You cry out violence and injustice and see the law not working. I will answer with violence and issue my justice. This brings us down to the next section, verses 7 through 10, where we see God's tools. God's tools. He's continuing to describe the Babylonians. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come through violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. So we see God's tools. God's tools. In verse 7, he describes them as terrible. Now the New King James uses in verse 7, terrible and dreadful. The ESV reads, dreaded and fearsome. Babylon was already receiving a reputation of being terrifying, and they caused fear to those that lay in their path. Judgment and justice and their own dignity comes from themselves. There was no world court of that time to judge them, no UN to sanction them or to shake its finger at them, saying, no, 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 you need to give those city-states back. There was nothing like that. They were a law unto themselves, at least in their minds, and seemingly unstoppable. When they captured Nineveh, Assyria fell apart, and they just swept through. That, pow that, vac that uh, uh, power vacuum was not there for very long. Babylon filled it very quickly. They were a law unto themselves and seemingly unstoppable. Yet, Nebuchadnezzar would find out soon enough where 
his mighty empire came from. And it came by the will of the Lord. Turn quickly to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 28. Daniel chapter 4 beginning in verse 20, 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, you and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwellings shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. Nebuchadnezzar, in his pride, looked over his kingdom and said, How great am I to have built all this! And he very quickly learned his lesson. Well, not too quickly. It took about seven years for him to figure that one out. But they considered themselves a law unto themselves, and they were seemingly unstoppable. And verses 8 through 10 really describes their military might. So verses 8 to 10 is mighty military. Mighty military. Verse 8 first describes their horses and cavalry. Now it gives some very figurative language here describes the speed and ferocity of, their, of the Babylonian army in a figurative way. It says that they are swifter than leopards. On their horses, they moved quite fast. This gives a very rather sinister aspect, as it would seem that they would appear almost out of nowhere, plunder their victims, capture their city, and would vanish just as quickly. They were described more fierce than evening wolves. Wolves typically hunt around dusk in the cool of the evening, and therefore they would be more ferocious at this time. And both wolves and leopards are predatory hunting animals that were rather very fierce. This pictures the ferocity of which the Babylonians were, con were conquering their, their neighbors as they were conquering their empire. This next line, their chargers charge ahead. Um, th this is more speaking of the horsemen. Another translation says their horsemen charge ahead, uh, or, or something similar to that. But it's that idea of the horsemen, not just, that's what the wording there is for chargers. 
the King, New King James, I think, is the only one that uses that word. Their horsemen charge ahead, and they come from afar as swift as an eagle or a vulture to feast. This describes how swiftly they could attack on horseback. Horses in the Bible are typically seen as military animals. The idea of them as being farm animals, as pulling a plow, was very unheard of. It was, it was kind of rare to think of it that way. The cavalry of the Babylonians would have struck fear into the heart of the people of Judah. They would come attacking as speedily as a vulture or eagle or a bird of prey swooping down on its bird, on its prey, excuse me. It's possible that the, the animal that's, that is uh, um, behind this word that, that may be referred to here is what we call now the griffin vulture. This is a somewhat common vulture in the region. It is a type of vulture eagle who has a wingspan of seven and a half to nine feet. Anywhere, its body length is anywhere from 36 and a half inches to 48 inches. And it can weigh anywhere from 13 to 24 pounds. It has a top speed of around 47 miles an hour. Nearly 50, mile, 50 miles an hour. And typically, that speed comes when they're swooping down on prey. That's the picture here, when the bird of prey is swooping down on its prey. Roughly 50 vultures could reduce a sheep carcass to skin and bones within 20 minutes. This statement about the horseman flying like an eagle alludes back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now, chapter 28 records the blessings and the cursings that would come on the nation of Israel if they held the law, held to the law, or not. And in verse 49 of Deuteronomy 28, we read this: "The Lord will bring against, will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like eagles, a nation whose language you do not understand." Now, if we look back at our verse here, verse 8 here, their chargers charge ahead, their cavalry comes from afar, they fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. There's an allusion there back to that promise of this is what can happen if you continue to break the covenant. And that is what will be happening to Judah. In verse 9, they are violent and they are set. The entire army of the Babylonians were bent, of, were bent towards violence. They are described as a fierce desert wind from the east. These types of winds could blow across the desert and would often devastate crops and vegetation. And the second half of the verse describes how quickly they could capture and how uh, how quickly they could capture and how many captives they could take. Their captives are like sand. 
the average human hand can hold or cup about 10,000 grains of sand. To describe here that they come like an east wind gathering captives like sand. That's how fast they can move and capture their enemies. In verse 10, it talks about they, they just, they mock foreign rulers. They mock and scoff kings and rulers. They're laughed at. They, they have no, their confidence is so great in their strength that they don't care what other king or ruler or, or little princeling over some city-state thinks they can do. And 2 Kings 25 verse 7 describes their brutality in the treatment of Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. After Jerusalem fell, Zedekiah was made to watch as his sons were killed, and he was blinded so that that sight was etched into his memory. They placed him in shackles and took him as prisoner back to Babylon. They would quickly overpower fortified cities and, or fortresses. Even these fortified cities were a joke to the Babylonians. They deride every stronghold. They heap up earthen mounds and seize it. They heap up earthen mounds. This is a, a reference to a siege ramp. The Babylonians learn from the Assyrians how to make some early siege weapons, and they would wage siege warfare very effectively. The siege ramp would, would build up so that they could get up closer to the cities, up to the walls where they could start attacking. They had a type of machine um, that really was just some shielding on some wheels, and it could also be used as a battering ram. And from this, this vehicle, they could shoot, the archers could shoot at any defenders on the wall. At the same time, workers would seek to undermine the walls by trying to dig a tunnel under it and invade from under the wall. And when they went into a full-scale attack, their soldiers would set, certain soldiers would set ladders against the walls to climb it and engage. They learned how to do siege warfare. They could quickly take cities. But verse 11 tells us that these tools are guilty. We have, they are guilty tools. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. Now, the first part of verse 11, this verse can be difficult to translate and get a hold of, but I've kind of followed the, major, the majority of interpreters here. The New King James reads, Then his mind changes and he transgresses. The ESV reads, then they sweep by like the wind and go on. You see, that's a major difficulty. What, that's a major change, right? Well, part of my hang-up when I was first studying this was that word transgress. We tend to think when we see transgress or transgressions, we tend to think of sin. That's not the word that's being used. It is trans 
transgressing, moving on, going through, passing on, passing over. And the, the word there for mind changes. The, the word there for mind can actually also refer to spirit. So this, there could be that idea of they change their minds and they move on. That's kind of the way the New King James presents it. But the other versions, like the ESV, even the King James, the King James doesn't even use transgress. They use uh, go on or pass through. Um, but the idea is this idea of a wind sweeping, sweeping across. They speedily come through, plundering and conquering like a wind sweeping through the desert. It's kind of a repeat of that earlier, uh, of that earlier thought, figure of speech. Um, but, but this verse could be a little bit difficult to get a hold of. But the second half, for the most part, is rather clear. It says they're guilty because they claim that their power is their God. This is their cardinal sin. Though God ordained them to rise to power and to be his instrument of judgment, they did not recognize the true God. For them, might was right, but it became might is divine. They considered their might, their strength as their God. They worshipped the strength of their hands. Is this hubris, pride, and violent actions of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2, 3, and 4 hard to understand now? Is it any wonder of his hubris and violent actions in those chapters? Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he commands his magicians and soothsayers and wise men to tell him what the dream was and to tell them the interpretation. And when no one could do it, he became furious and threatened to kill every wise man in his court. To which Daniel said, whoa, 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 I can explain this. Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar builds this giant golden statue of himself, of himself and commands all to bow and worship at the appointed time when the music plays or to be thrown in the fiery furnace. Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. Daniel reveals its meaning. But in his pride, as we just read, in his pride and hubris, he praises his strength that built his kingdom. And he spent something like seven years living as an animal in the wilderness. Because there, they recognized their might, their strength as their God. Therefore, the Lord declares them guilty. So Habakkuk cries out, Lord, where are you? How long are you going to let this happen? And the Lord says, I am doing something. They are coming. The Lord is at work. He knows what is happening. He is still God. He is still the creator. He is still the king of heaven, and he rules and overrules every nation and kingdom on earth.
So no matter what our government thinks is best, no matter what Putin thinks is best, God is still on the throne. And he is overruling what is happening. He may allow things to happen, but we need to remember that he is not slow or slack as some count slowness, but he is patient. And today is the day of salvation. Today is the day the Lord is offering forgiveness and asking for repentance. Let's bow for a brief word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we're able to spend in your word. And though this is a can be a difficult passage to look at, we thank you for the reminders that you are who you say you are, that you remember your promises. Even the promises of discipline. Help us not to be fearful about these things. Help us not to be fearful of the things that we see in our culture. But help us to live faithfully to you and to your word. Help us to stand like Daniel. Help us to stand like his colleagues, his friends would not bow to such an evil king. But help us to stand for what is right and what is true. And help us to understand these things from your word. We thank you that you are patient and long-suffering, that you offer forgiveness But help us to remember to go forward and to proclaim your forgiveness and to call those around us to repentance. Because you are not slow. And today is the day of, of repentance. Today is the day of salvation. But the day of the Lord is hastening on. Help us not to be slack in our responsibilities. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.